You are listening to audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church on the corner of Ebenezer Baptist and Pleasant Green Road. If you would like to learn more about our church, please go to ebcconnect.org. Now, here's our pastor with this week's sermon. Psalm 121 says this, it says, I will lift my eyes to the mountains, from where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord made heaven and earth. That's a great thing to look at. It's how this is required. thinking, okay, in this world, is that a place to, to look? Is that a place to count on? And the answer is yes. And verse 3 goes on to say, He will not allow you to put the slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. And we often, or I would think at least in practical terms, Sometimes we treat God as if He takes naps. Would you agree? I mean, if you if you watch the news, you go, "Where's God? Where's He hanging out these days?" Because as I look at the world around me and I see things going on, I question: Is God paying attention? Is God looking around? Is He does He watch Fox News or something else? Does He watch CNN or any of the other news stations? Figure out what's going on. Is he even aware? I think he's very aware. I think he's very um, in tune with, not just in tune with what's going on, but in charge of what's going on. Not, not to say that he brings evil or that he causes evil, but to say that God has pulled his hand completely off has nothing to do with any of the events that are going on around us is to say that God has just taken a step back and is not involved in humanity at all. In fact, he, in that case, he wouldn't even care about people that he made. We understand that some, we know as we look at Scripture that God is in charge, that he's still in control. Nothing takes him by surprise. And so when we read passages and go through, we understand that God doesn't sleep. He's very aware. And he's working on his promises in a way that will bring, ultimately bring him glory. And I'm glad. I'm not glad for the situations that we see our nation in or that we see around us, but I am glad that God's in control. I am glad that God is still there and he's somebody that you and I can lean on on a regular basis, regardless of what's going on. Um, we've been in the Gospel of Mark. When we're in this series, we've learned a couple of different things. We've learned the importance of faith. And a while back, we talked about the idea of taking one step of faith. Remember that? It was we looked at the faith of some and the extraordinary effort they took to address Jesus or get in the presence of Jesus. And we said it took them one step to move that much closer to him. And for us... Just in our lives, we need to take one step of faith. And it may be as we move closer to him, our one step of faith is fleshed out in maybe being involved in a ministry or going somewhere or doing something different, maybe even just talking to the person who lives next door to us. So we were encouraged to take one step of faith. And, and then we talked about the things that we hold on to the titles. We, we looked at... That passage where Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees about the 
about the actions of his disciples. And he says that they held on to the traditions of men, but didn't even treat those well. And we said that in that, there was a comparison that was made that should we follow tradition or should we be more centered on what relationship with God is about? And the conclusion in looking at Scripture was that God encourages us and teaches us that we ought to hold tightest to Him and less tight to those things that are around us. That the traditions of men are just that, and although that some of those may lead us to understand who Christ is, our job, our, our joy would be to hold on to Christ more. And then on Mother's Day, we saw the determination of a mom and how tenacity and faith changed the legacy of her family. We mentioned that her life and her daughter's life were changed because Jesus did something in their family. And the question was, what is God doing in your family? And how would future conversations go in your family if you just took that one step of faith? So this is, this is what I'm going to do in following Christ. How does that affect the rest of life around you? Last week, um, Morning Children's was here, our director of missions from the Gates Association, and what I heard from him was that our job, although we have the flags and we go and do all that stuff, there is more to be done. And that we're called to step out in faith and follow Christ with all that we are. And sometimes it means going, and sometimes it means staying, but it always means Follow Christ with everything that's in us. And so we were encouraged to do that. You know that our purpose as a church, as a church family, is to bring glory to God, and we do that by developing authentic followers of Jesus Christ who impact the world. So it's the we develop and we learn some things, but then it's not just a sit around and gather information, it's a going to impact those around us. If we're not doing that, we miss out on what God's called us to. We kind of miss out on even the, the joy and the, we can call it happiness, but, but what we see when somebody comes to Christ, that, that sense that now they have a relationship with God that they didn't have before, when we are willing to step out of our comfort zone. Today, we celebrate Memorial Day, and although the holiday, Official holidays tomorrow, we're going to think about that just a little bit because there are people that, when they join the military or call the military service, step out of their comfort zone. I don't, I don't know about you, but it is never, it would never be comfortable. And I, I can serve, but I'm guessing that in my life, comfort is not in the middle of mud in the water. That's the picture I have of some of the boot camp kind of stuff, is I don't want to be there. That's not comfortable. That's not normal. I like sitting at the table eating food, enjoying freedom. But for some, that discomfort enables us to have freedom. What they went through enables us to have freedom. The training that goes on when somebody gives their life to serve in our military. And I'm thankful for that. Um, we had the privilege of going to the World War II Museum last week when we were in New Orleans. Um, we were given that as a recommendation from somebody in our church family, and so we decided, well, we'll go check it out. And it's in a section of town, we just kind of went, okay, all right. And uh, they're building up around it, and it's kind of an interesting place. If we could just 
kind of scroll through those five, I think there's about five different pictures from the, the museum itself. It is a tremendous experience. And after we got in there and started reading some of the plaques and listening to the stories, what we realized was that although we set aside about five hours to be in that museum, there were multiple buildings that we spent most of our time in one. We could have easily spent two days going through that, even without reading all the things. That's a picture of the second building, the, the Boeing building, and those planes are real size, actual size in that room. So I know it's kind of hard to get, they kind of look like model planes. They're not. And you can't get up in them, they're hanging from the ceiling. I checked the cables to make sure that they were stout enough from what I could see. Because I figure if I'm going to walk under them, I want to know that they're going to hold. Uh, but those are real planes. And it was just a, an awesome experience to go through that. And as we did, there are stories just kind of scattered throughout the whole place. Where you'll go and you'll, you'll go up to an exhibit and you'll see some, some pictures or some artifacts of, of that era that, or somebody's life. And then you'll read the story of an individual and how they served and what they did. And then you, you'll see other pictures of how the United States as a nation responded in World War II, even leading up to it. And it's interesting, they had one section there where they looked at the opinion of the nation. And then I guess the, they took polls and said, do you want to go to war? Do you not want to go to war? Those kind of things. And the charts were up on the wall. And it was interesting to see as you walk through a little bit each, during each section how the public opinion changed during that time. We went from isolationist to we need to be involved. And so we went from watching something that was way far away and not wanting to be part of it because of the, the injuries um, of the nation during World War I and wanting to stay out of it to the point where we started sending sending materials to Great Britain to help them, and then all of a sudden we were involved in it because we got attacked. Public opinion changed. Changed the, not just the perception of our nation, but it changed the action of our nation. And then something much less serious, and so we need to come off of those pictures for just a minute, because the, the other piece of public opinion that's out and over the last couple of weeks is is it, is it Yanny or is it Coral? <laughs> if you spend time on Facebook, you've heard the recordings, all right? So, so and I was, this was brought up in the sermon I heard last week, and I, I looked at the public opinion there. How many of you know what we're talking about? All right, that's, that's a good number. How many of you heard Yanny? Laurel. How many of you changed somewhere in the middle of that? A couple of them, yeah. Um, I went back this week and started listening to it. Because the first time I heard it, I heard Yanny. Then this week when I listened to Sunday morning, I heard Laurel. And it depended on which device I was listening to it on. But I also checked with a Facebook post of a guy who runs a recording studio in Nashville. And he had done some checking. He went back to the original recording. He says, it's actually two recordings. And you're hearing both at the same time. So he broke it down and separated things and did different frequencies 
frequency adjustments to it, and he said it can be both. And so public opinion, in, in that case not so serious, in the case of World War II, very serious. But public opinion drives action. Public opinion drives action. It goes like this. In my opinion, and then you give that opinion, or have a subject for that opinion, therefore I will do this. Public opinion drives action. And, and we see it all around us. And we can just put it in the scope of church. In my opinion, I have this opinion about church, therefore I will. It can go like this. I have this opinion about church, or I have this opinion about a particular thing, so I will choose to come on Sunday or stay home on Sunday. I will stay at this church or I will move to another church. I will give or I will not give. There are a lot of decisions we make based on our personal opinion. And yet we have to ask the question, if our opinion matters so much, how does it line up with God's? So when do opinions matter? When is it relevant that our opinion takes precedent over what God's word says? Maybe the question is, whose opinion are we listening to? Is it God's or is it ours? Whose opinion is it? So as we go through this passage this morning in Mark chapter 8, uh, I want you to think about the idea of opinion, your opinion versus God's opinion, how those match up. Let's pray that God will teach us this morning as we go through this passage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. God, your word is true. And Father, we can choose to, to take your word and pick it apart and say, this is what I believe and this is my opinion about it, or we can say, this is what you believe, this is your opinion, and we have to make a decision of where we're going to land, how it will drive the action of our life. So, Father, I pray that you'll teach us. And God, whether I express everything correctly this morning, God, I pray that your word would go forth in power and authority. God, that they would hear what you said, more than what I say. God, that this room would be filled with your spirit and that he would, he would have the freedom to work in our lives and be able to accomplish what no man can accomplish. God, we just thank you for the opportunity, opportunity to study and to reflect and meditate on what your word says. So God, help us to be an obedient people, surrender, that you may be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. So as we turn to Mark chapter 8, we're going to be over starting in verse 27. So go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 8, and we'll start in verse 27. And the background of this is, is we understand Jesus had been around a lot of folks. He'd had a pretty big following. He'd been chased down by several people saying, come heal, and then in between that he was teaching, and he even sought to get away once, and he was found, and uh, a lady with lots of tenacity came and approached him about her daughter. And so we realized that Jesus is an 
middle of a lot of folks, but in this particular case, that gets narrowed down to just his followers. He's a little bit secluded and begins to have a conversation with his disciples. The first thing I want us to understand is that believers must guard their minds and hearts from the influence of public opinion. Now catch that. Believers must guard their minds and hearts from the influence of public opinion. You may go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. What if public opinion is good? The question is, whether we think it's good or bad doesn't line up with God's word. There are lots of public opinions that we would put in a good category, but they may not be God's word. So, so let's read through this beginning section. Mark chapter 8, starting verse 27. Jesus went out, along with his disciples, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? So Jesus is taking an opinion poll, asking his disciples, the small group of guys, Who do people say that I am? And we find this in, in a couple of different places. We find this same section of scripture, the same idea, same story in Matthew chapter 16 and Luke chapter 9. So you can flip between the two. They're pretty much the same. A couple little small differences in that. But essentially they're the same. And this question is asked in all three passages. Who do people say that I am? And then it goes on to say, they told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued to question them. He said, but who do you say that I am? So let's just stop there. Was Jesus really interested in public opinion? Was he going to drive him? Why do you think Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? It wasn't that he didn't know. No, I think he knew exactly what people were saying. I don't think he took it by surprise that people would say, hey, it could be John the Baptist, it could be Elijah, it could be one of the prophets, it could be any of those. I think Jesus is going a little bit deeper and asking, do people understand who I am? <laughs> people understand that I'm the Messiah, that I'm God in flesh incarnate here in their presence. Do people understand that? And from the response, the response is some kind of all over the page. It's, John the Baptist, Elijah, maybe one of the prophets, but nobody says the Messiah. That wasn't in the mix, at least in this passage, where they said, it's John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the other prophets, and the Messiah. And that didn't enter. It was like there was a separation between the two. And so Jesus, wanting to know a little bit more, asked the disciples, well, who do you say that? Peter being the group spokesperson, as we've seen in, mul in multiple occasions through Scripture, he answers. He says, Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. You are, you are the Christ of God. You are the Messiah. And so Peter answers the question. He says, You are the Messiah. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus turns around and says, You didn't get that on your own. There was some kind of, there was a spiritual understanding you, you weren't. You didn't grab that from just hanging out. You grabbed that because the Spirit taught you. So you can look over at Matthew 16 and see a little bit of that. So the answer says, 
You are the Christ. And then in verse 30, and he warned them not to tell, to tell no one about him. Why? Well, we've asked that question a couple different times because Jesus seems to have this thing about at the end of a miracle or at the end of some truth saying, hey, don't tell me that. It kind of makes me question whether Jesus was doing some psychological thing. Going, if I tell you not to tell anybody, you'll tell me. No, don't tell anybody this secret. <coughs> Leave the whole lot. Ain't no longer that secret. So I don't, I don't, I kind of doubt it was that. I think it was more on the idea of Jesus as the Messiah not wanting to have it be publicly known as he was going to be this one that would come as a military leader because that's what they were looking for on the side. They were looking for somebody different than what Jesus was going to be. And Jesus was trying to reveal God in flesh, but not in the way that they were perceiving that he should have. And so Jesus says, don't tell anything. See, public opinion, in this particular case, when Jesus is asking those questions, we think about public opinion, they go a bunch of different places, can't they? I mean, you could have public opinion about a sincere belief. What if I have a sincere belief about something? Does that make it true? Because I can have a sincere belief about a lot of things. That doesn't always make it true. There are a lot of sincere followers of somebody other than Jesus Christ who think they're going, going to inherit something that they're not. They are deceived. They may be trusting in their works. They may be trusting in another public figure. And the public opinions that do not center on Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the only way to God, the only way to receive eternal life, are putting their hope and their trust in something that is not true. So people can have a sincere belief, but if it doesn't line up with Scripture, then it's wrong. Those that believe the Bible and try to share, this is another example of public opinion that's out there. Those that believe the Bible and try to share the gospel are dangerous and should be limited in their freedoms. Have you heard that? I don't know. You guys don't look real dangerous. I think some of you are. But, uh, but in general, that's not look real dangerous. You may be dangerous to the public opinion around you. You may be dangerous to the thought patterns of some that don't believe in Christ. You may be dangerous to the lifestyles of those that say, I don't believe, I don't believe Scripture and I want to live any way I want to live. You may be dangerous to that. But in general, I don't think you're dangerous. Not in the, not in the true sense of the word, but not to cause harm and destruction. Those opinions, although they are opinions, don't line up with Scripture. Jesus questioned the, the disciples, and he says they're still looking for a Messiah. Jesus, I think, had this idea, and I think he, as we look at Scripture and see what he says, is that Jesus understood who was around him, that they were lost. Mark 6, 34 says, when Jesus went ashore, and this is, he, he 
gets to a large crowd, he saw the large crowd, and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. It's interesting that Jesus asked about other people's opinion of him. When in Mark 6, what we see is Jesus' is opinion of them. That they are like sheep without a shepherd. They're like the people that are lost and, and don't have any kind of anger for their life. And Jesus begins to teach them and tell them about who he is and who God is and who they need to trust. And there's still a pushback. What about you? That's essentially what Jesus asked. What about you? And so we can ask that in here. What about you? What's your opinion of Jesus? Who do you think he is? The disciples came to the conclusion of Christ the Messiah, and we have to come to that conclusion if we're going to place our trust in him. See, it seems very silly for us to place our trust in somebody other than who Jesus really is. If our opinion of Jesus is that he was a good teacher or just a prophet or, or somebody with some good things that we may follow, an example maybe for life, if that is our opinion of Jesus, then we place our trust in something that is quite temporary. But if we really, if we really have the opinion that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's God, and we place our trust there, then we place our trust in an anchor of somebody that we can wholeheartedly lean on regardless of the circumstances around us. 2 Timothy 4, 3-4 says, For the time will come when they, he's talking about people in general. Maybe it's the crowd that was standing with Jesus, that, that outer group that was kind of listening to his teaching, but it could just as well apply to those that you're around every single day. For there will come a time when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside from this. That's an indictment. That's a strong indictment of the culture in which we live. In fact, it's a strong indictment of some churches that exist. Wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. Is this idea of, I will go wherever I feel good. I will go to hear something that makes me feel good. And although there is an element of, I want to be lifted up in church, there's also an element that we are called to live holy lives before a holy God. There's a, an element where our lives have to be so changed that we live out a life that pleases Him and wants to please Him. See, His commandments aren't burdensome. They become just a means for us to understand not just who God is, but how we can bring glory and honor to Him. So, how do I get my toes stuck? You know, I'm not getting my toes stepped on enough. Just listen closely. Talk and tell Wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves hard teachers in accordance with their own desires. We must guard our hearts and our minds from the sway of public opinion 
by comparing it to the opinion of God or the truth of God's word. Public, public opinion does not shape our theology or doctrine. However, public opinion does shape our approach to the lost world. I hear that. Public opinion doesn't change our doctrine or our theology. We still believe that Jesus is God, that he came, he came as the Son of God, he was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, went to the cross on our behalf that he didn't have to do so that he could pay the penalty for our sin. That he was put in a tomb, he was raised three days later, and he's coming back. Public opinion doesn't change that. But public opinion does change the way we approach the world around us with the truth of the gospel. Sometimes we can go to a street corner and scream, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And sometimes we come up beside somebody and say, let me listen to your life, let me hear your life, and let me tell you how God can intercept you. He can change you. Public opinion does not change our theology or doctrine, but it shapes our approach to the lost world. We have to understand that public opinion about Jesus and the church is sometimes driven by actions of those claiming a relationship with God. Understand, those around you may make or establish their public opinion about the church by what they see in us. Does that scare you? Sometimes it scares me. Am I living a life that, that is pleasing to God? Pleasing to Him in such a way that those around me can see God. Second thing I want us to catch is that Jesus explains the divine purpose for His life. As we go to verse 31, it says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. There's the gospel. There's the purpose of Jesus' life. And he was stating the matter plainly. So Jesus didn't pull any punches at this point. He just laid it out. He stated the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I don't know about you. Okay, so, so, we, so Peter just says, you're the Messiah. You're God incarnate. You're here. Let me pull you aside and rebuke you. I don't know what Peter was thinking. I have no clue. Looking at this, is Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And, and I guess he was telling him, hey, you don't need to do those things. You don't need to be rejected. You don't need to be spit upon. You don't need to be pushed aside. You don't need to be hung on a cross. Doesn't need to happen. Jesus turns around and seeing his disciples, Rebuke Peter. Because Peter is the spokesman for the group. And we've got to understand that although Peter may have said it out loud, you know those thoughts are also going through the minds of the disciples. This doesn't need to happen. And maybe even they, they may have been in this little bit of a shock here in the beginning part of that. He began to teach him the Son of Man, God, the Messiah, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. Whoa, whoa. I don't get how you should be rejected and suffer many things and die 
In fact, I'm listening to that, and before we even get to the part of rising again, I've turned my mind off to anything you're saying beyond that one phrase, and I'm centering on, well, my world is getting turned upside down because I've followed you for two and a half years. I've been following you for two and a half years, and you're telling me my world is going to be crushed. The divine plan of God is better and bigger than the plan of man. Jesus turns to Peter, rebuked Peter, and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest but man's. Man, those could have been hurtful words, right? Get behind me, Satan. Peter is not in the mood for hearing. Get behind me, Satan, from Jesus. Peter thinks he's doing good. You don't have to do this. What Jesus reveals to him is, is you're being an agent of Satan. You're essentially bringing up the same arguments as Matthew chapter 4 when I face Satan in the wilderness. You don't have to do this. You can turn these stones to bread. You can look out over this kingdom. You can have anything you want. You don't have to do this. Peter was just bringing up the same arguments. You don't have to do this. Jesus had something else in mind. See, Jesus, as the Son of Man, as Messiah, was 100% God and 100% man. He's the only one that can make the sacrifice on our behalf. Hebrews 2, 14 through 17 essentially says that. It says, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son, Jesus, also became flesh and blood, for only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who lived their lives as slaves of the fear of God. We also know that the Son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Us. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Catch this last part. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. That's me. Jesus came in the flesh. 100%, 100% God, 100% man on our behalf so that we could live. <coughs> Took on flesh, didn't give up his deity. Michael Bird says this, says the Son wills to be incarnate in obedience to the Father and the power of the Spirit in order to execute the divine plan of salvation. The divine plan of salvation for us. So Jesus Peter rebukes Jesus privately, and Jesus turns around and rebukes, rebukes Peter publicly. God has a purpose. God has a purpose for saving us. He has a purpose for our lives as well. He wants you and I to bring glory to his name, not just to exist, not just to have our own public opinion, our own private opinion, maybe, but to exist in a way that brings him glory. And he takes us through the process of sanctification or maturing in our lives. 
so that that bringing glory to God takes place. The third thing I want us to catch is that believers live under a different paradigm than what public opinion dictates. 34 through 37, verse 34 through 37 say this, And he summoned the crowd of his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Not comfortable. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Those are good questions. We're, we're called to be different. Denial, denial of self is hard. Because I want what I want. I want the air conditioning or the heat. This place, my house, wherever it is, I want it to be what I want. Don't you? If, if I can, I, I don't have an automatic starter on my car, but if I did, I would turn it on five minutes before I would leave this building room on a 90 degree day. Because I would like my truck and it's not going to happen. I don't have that. I can sit there and press my buttons all day long. My truck's never going to start. It's never going to cool down. But we want what we want. But this, what Scripture teaches us, is that sometimes we have to give up what we want and submit ourselves to God's opinion. Submit ourselves to God's want and taking the truth of God into the arena of public opinion may cost you. It may cost you your reputation. It may cost you your security, your job. It may even cost you your pride. And yet, Scripture teaches us that that is a win. Look at the example of Mike Pence. He makes a statement about a particular issue. And essentially, he gets crucified in the news for having an opinion about something. Like Scripture and praying. We'd say, well, that's not fair. Sometimes standing up for what is right and what is biblical doesn't seem fair to us, but it is a way that God uses us and matures us in Christ, but it's also a way of putting out his truth. And so it may cost us. And you and I have to decide whether, whether what we are chasing in life is worth it. And if we are chasing God, it's definitely worth it. But I'm convinced that not all of us are chasing God. We find other things to chase. We find other ways of defending our, the use of our time or the use of our money or the use of our resources because we have an opinion. And yet, God has an opinion. So how do we do that? How do we use that? The fourth thing, the last thing I want us to understand is that followers of Christ Let's consider our profession for now and eternity. This last verse, for, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Jesus is returning. And even if you die before that, there is a there is and will be 
a meeting face to face between you and God. I, I look at this verse, and I know this verse has been quoted in, in the context of an, an invitation to the church. It would often be told is, it, you would hear this, come forward, accept Christ, understanding that if you're, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. And so we encourage people, come forward to church. Come down here. This is, this is that arena of not being ashamed. I want to tell you that this is not the context of the arena that's spoken of in this passage. This context, church context, is a safe context by which you can make a decision. You can come forward. In here, it's easy to let go of the pew and walk forward and say, this is what I believe, or this is my profession of faith, or this is where I need help, or this is where I need somebody to come alongside me. The context of this passage, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation is a, is a shame outside the walls of this church, outside of the safety of this context. We often say, that's for here. No, it's for out there, which is a much more difficult place to have a profession of faith in the Son of God. It's much more difficult. Because public opinion will tell you you're stupid. You're dumb. Because you're trusting in something that's not real. And when we look in Scripture, we say, no, that's not stupid or dumb. That is wise beyond measure for me to trust in Christ with all that I am. Context of this is us living outside in the middle of public opinion, stage what God's opinion is. We have to have a boldness to do it. It starts with what our opinion of God is. And it finishes with us taking that opinion into a world that doesn't look like it. Where Jesus understands that it's very dangerous, it's very critical. That, in fact, you could lose your life. It's considered carrying a cross. It's in that realm. It's not the comforting part of that. It is the difficult part. And for somebody to say, when I come to Christ, everything's going to be great. No, when you come to Christ, it ought to get more difficult by the day as you are more and more surrendered to who Christ is in you. As you become more and more surrendered to who Jesus is. Now, granted, when I say more difficult, it's because living in, in the midst of public opinion in that sinful in that sinful generation, that there is a pressing in. But it becomes more joyful as we get to know Christ and we realize that He is the one that sustains us by His awesome grace. You never realize the fullness of God's grace until you're willing to put your life on the line. That's where Paul landed so many times. I'm willing to put my life on the line. It comes in applied grace to me. It's why living out the freedom that is found in the grace of God, as he talks about in Galatians, is so important. The temptation is to have my reputation remain intact among those that I'm near and at. Instead of realizing that my reputation intact now is not near as important as my reputation intact for eternity. 
this passage was is a challenge, and it goes beyond just saying, Jesus, you're God. It goes beyond that. It goes beyond that intellectual part of saying, yeah, I know, this is my life, I get that. Carrying a cross, it must be difficult because I've got to get up maybe one hour earlier for church than I used to be up if, if a change in schedule would take place. That's a cross. It is not. Changing, changing schedule is not a cross to bear. Difficulty in a warm car is not a cross to bear. We can't put things like that in the realm of what Jesus is talking about in this passage. Jesus calls us to live a dangerous faith in a tough world. And he says, lean on me and I will pour grace on you. Allow me to be God in your life. See how it turns out. You see, this passage is six months from the cross. Jesus' cross. This is six months from everything that the disciples had trusted for two and a half years being devastated and demolished. To some extent, it led to the three days of going, God, what am I going to do? So we go back to that passage. Verse 31 says, and after three days, rise again. If the disciples catch that and really believe it and understand that Jesus is who he says he is, that phrase, and after three days, rise again, will become so significant to their life. Because post-resurrection, we understand that Jesus is still in charge. That he's not lost control. And he offers us grace for living in this dangerous world. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you're the Messiah, and, and my life is challenged by the idea that I've got to be in a place where I'm willing to lose my life. Not because I want to save it, but because my life is worth losing for the case of Christ. So God, this morning I pray that you will help me to be bolder in my faith. Bolder in what I say. God, help me to, to live in this world differently because I know you. Father, I would pray that for all of us in this room. God, I would also pray for the one that may not know you. And they may be looking at this passage and going, I don't know if I want to give up my life for that. God, you reassure us that giving our life up and surrendering, surrendering our life to you is a great means of gain for eternity. That you offer us a personal relationship through Jesus. You offer us a personal relationship with Almighty Creator God that's available no other way. So God, I pray that the one who may not know you would come to know you today, would believe and trust you, would confess not just their sin, but confess their, their trust in you, and say, God, I want to rely on you going forward. So God, I pray for the one that's never accepted Christ as their Savior. God, I pray for the one that and maybe is many that say, I've, I've had a relationship with Christ, but it's not been a, a vibrant relationship. 
And today I need to renew that. And God also pray for the one who may be considering whether to join the church. That not just because membership has privileges. God, but to join the church because they want to put their lives in and commit to being part of a group of people, a family of God that wants to take in the world your word and spread it in this world. God, they want to be part of a community of faith, a family of God. So God, I pray you draw them. God, we just trust that during this invitation that your voice will be louder than any other voice. God, that we would consider just the next few moments as sacred before you. God, that we wouldn't be moved around with the idea of what's for lunch, but we would move around with the idea of what comes this morning. God, let that drive us. Let your opinion drive our action this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Told you we went to the World War II Museum last week and read this plaque. Oscar Johnson Jr. understood the cost of the stake in standing up for his country. This is what the plaque says. And that's a picture of him on the screen. He was, um, he served and received the Medal of Honor. And this is what the plaque says. After his border section ran out of ammunition during an assault on the Gothic line near Scarperia, Private First Class Oscar Johnson and his fellow squad members grabbed rifles to defend their company from counterattacks. Under heavy fire from a nearby ridge, Johnson's squad suffered heavy casualties during the repeated attacks. By afternoon, he was the sole surviving member. One day. Johnson remained at his post throughout the night, resupplying himself with ammunition from his fallen comrades as he repelled further assaults. Twenty-five Germans surrendered one man. Surrendered to the one-man defense the next day, Johnson was promoted to sergeant and received the medal. How do you want your life to be known? Well, this guy's piece of his life, that incident, that confrontation with the German army in that particular case, that piece of his life is known. And it's commemorated on, on a plaque in a museum. But if we ask you, based on your opinion of Christ and how you're willing to live your life for Christ, how will your life be known? How would you say? And whether you realize it or not, your life here at Ebenezer, your life here in the community in which you live, whether you work at Duke or UNC or some other place, your life is known. Your life will be known. It may not be commemorated on a cloud or in the paper or anywhere else. But a life set on Christ can make a great difference in the world around you. I would rather have us be known by people who serve God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength than I would to make a newspaper.
just because we make our plans. Let's be known as people of God. So as God leads you this morning, as we stand, as God leads you this morning, you be obedient to God. If you would like to receive Christ or want somebody to pray with you, I'll be here, Pastor Curry, Pastor Scott's here. We're here to be there for you to, to receive you. Pray with you. Encourage you. listening to this audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church. We welcome you to join us next Sunday at 10:30 a.m. for our weekly worship service. If you have found this resource helpful, please do share it with others and check out our other ministries at ebcconnect.org.